0: This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. If political opinion in this country is an unstoppable force, constantly changing, explosively coming to a head, the Supreme Court may well be an immovable object. Of course, that's in part by design. Lifetime appointments will do that. The Supreme Court is on the minds of many this summer after decisions on a number of hot issues that in many cases actually buck the popular opinion of the people. Most of the nation agrees that the court is broken. So what's the underlying problem and how do we fix it?
1: What is overconfidence other than the ability to say, yep, I know the answer. All these other people, they got it wrong.
0: Legal scholar and author Aaron Tang joins us to argue that the problem here is not partisanship. It's overconfidence. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. So the Supreme Court of 2023 is historically unpopular. That's probably not a surprise to any of you. We have talked about the court rolling back LGBTQ plus rights, affirmative action, reproductive rights. Experts like those at the Pew Research Center believe that decisions like those I've just mentioned have led to this steep drop-off in public approval of the court. The latest survey shows less than half of Americans have a favorable opinion of SCOTUS. This downswing in public support falls largely along party lines. In 2021, nearly 60 percent of Democrats felt positively about the Supreme Court. Now that's down to one in four or so. Republican approval ratings are more like 68 percent right now, though they dipped into the 30s during the Obama administration. So suffice it to say, the court's work is political. It always has been. And as the rest of the country has become increasingly polarized, so has the Supreme Court. If you believe the justices should be or aspire to be apolitical, that's kind of a problem. But our guest today argues that's not the biggest problem the Supreme Court is facing. It's overconfidence. Aaron Tang is a professor at UC Davis and author of Supreme Hubris, and he joins us now. Hello.
1: Hi, Celeste. Thanks for having me.
0: It is great to have you. Um, okay, so I do not claim to be an expert in this, so I'm going to have to defer to you on a lot of legal questions. Um, I have only covered the Supreme Court as a as a journalist, um, so th- with that caveat in mind, um, it's really difficult for me to think of overconfidence as being the the root cause here, because if you look back through the history of the Supreme Court. There have been some, some supremely overconfident justices. <laughs> There's been some very egotis- egotistical, one might say narcissistic justices. Yes. I, I, am I wrong here? No, <laughs> oh,
1: you're not wrong. So we find ourselves in agreement at the jump, right? So um, I think what's really interesting, yes, you've had a lot of very confident egotistical Supreme Court justices when they've written opinions that are overconfident. And what I mean here is very specific. I mean, opinions that suggest that nine unelected lawyers using just the right legalistic lawyers argument can solve huge problems facing society, right? When justices write opinions that take on that attitude, that's overconfidence. And so when you have justices like Roger Caney writing an opinion in Dred Scott, believing he can solve the entire slavery problem for all of America uh, by striking down the Missouri Compromise, right? That's overconfidence. That is a problem. It leads to a huge uh, loss of support for the public, for the Supreme Court. When you have overconfident Supreme Court striking down the minimum wage, labor law, child labor protections uh, in the early 1900s, that makes the court very unpopular. And we're in now another cycle where the Supreme Court is overconfidently Thinking it's that can answer all these problems for all of society. And I think it's standing in the public has suffered.
0: Okay, so how could what makes their overconfidence of our current justices understanding that Alito in particular and Clarence Thomas in particular are mind-bogglingly overconfident what makes their overconfidence different from the overconfidence of the dred scott decision or or the many i mean the, dis- the decision that it was okay to imprison american citizens who happen to be of asian descent what's the difference
1: yeah so what's different there's no difference between i think or there's little very little difference in the sort of attitude that today's court has compared to some of the worst moments we just talked about, the Dred Scott decision. But there is a big difference between the kind of overconfident justices we have now and the much humbler, yet still partisan, I wanna suggest, justices we've had at other periods when the public court, public's uh, widely supported the Supreme Court. So there's two moments in particular where the Supreme Court's popularity soared, even though the justices were extremely partisan because the justices were also humble. So that's in the New Deal, It's during a period when uh, uh, lawmakers are passing all these new regulations, guaranteeing a right to unionize, minimum wage, um, banning child labor. Uh, And instead of, uh, like the justices that came before them in the early 1900s, striking all those laws down because those justices ultra confidently believed they knew how to run an economy, the New Deal Supreme Court, eight justices appointed by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, they said, you know what? We don't have the answers. We don't know if this is the best economic policy. We don't have a strong view on what's constitutional or not. It's vague. The constitution's short, it's 2 it's you know 200 years old. We're going to defer to the expertise of others. We will humbly trust the wisdom of elected lawmakers, right? That's humility. It's much it's not confident. It's humble to suggest if we don't know the right answers, we're going to trust the people's elected representatives. So we'll allow labor law, we'll allow economic regulations and the court became much more popular
0: okay but i mean isn't some hubris required to be a supreme court justice i mean right i mean yeah. you're you're basically deciding what's right for an entire nation
1: sure well and not
0: even a small nation like Mali or something <laughs> like for <laughs> millions of people
1: <laughs> yeah so there's no doubt about that right it, it's especially required if you think about the rigmarole or the kabuki dance that is the modern confirmation process right yeah about what it, like the idea that some uh, you know, 55 year old lawyer could get nominated to the Supreme Court by saying, yeah, that's a really hard question. I don't know if the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion. Um, you know, I could see good arguments on both sides. Very quickly, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats would be interested in nominating that type of a person. Right. But yeah. um, so I think it's fair. Right. The justices have to show some confidence in order to get to the bench. Um, but once they're there, it's a different question. And so here, you know, maybe if, if there's any reason to be optimistic. About the justices currently in the Supreme Court, um, it's uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts, a died-in-the-wool conservative, grew up in the Federal Society, of, uh, you know, a, a true believer, extremely conservative man. You know, I know him uh, uh, and met him. There, you know, there's no doubt about his conservative bona fides. And yet, think about what he wrote in his opinion, concurring opinion, sort of trying to strike out a middle ground in the Dobbs case, the case overturning Roe v.ersus Wade. He didn't join the other five conservatives because he said. Gosh, I don't know. I am not so confident in my ability to answer the constitutional question. I don't know if the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion up to 15 weeks or 24 weeks or not at all. And because I don't know, I'm going to answer this, uh, uh, try to decide this question in a more modest, centrist kind of way. That's, opti- That's you know, if we can get one more conservative justice to join him, um, suddenly the Supreme Court wouldn't be as as dangerous and harmful to uh, to the progressive causes that I and many others care about.
0: Okay, so then let me understand the the root of the idea that you have that it's hubris that's causing all the problems. So this is sort of not to get a little bit too punny here about the legal language here, but this is your 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 fruit of the poison tree, right? Like everything else you think is stemming from this overconfidence. Why do you think this?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that the justices are overconfident, right? So, you know, everywhere from ethics controversies, right? Think about the kind of overconfidence you'd have to have to uh, tell the American people: there's nothing wrong with me taking a personal jet flight, a luxury even, vacation, even
0: to think that you wouldn't get caught, and the, I yeah, mean, I think you on. wouldn't get
1: caught yeah. and and not care about it, right? The the overconfidence, right? Um, the justices, the court's opinions, right? You've you referenced this, the language that the justices are using, right when. Sam Alito writes an opinion in Dobbs. It's not just that uh, the Roe versus Wade, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey cases, in which, by the way, nine of twelve Republican appointees who voted on the right to abortion supported a right to abortion in those two cases, right? But they were not just reasonable mistakes; they were egregiously wrong or an exceptionally weak, right? That's overconfidence, their personality, So the book, uh, Supreme Hubris, uh, that I've written, shares a bunch of sort of personal stories and anecdotes about. Bunch of justices across the spectrum right this is not just a a, a problem on the right Ruth gate Bader Ginsburg uh, for as, as wonderful and heroic as she was in so many ways uh was very very much victim to overconfidence uh in in all sorts of ways so the book talks about that too right so this is a problem that transcends partisan uh this this the partisan spectrum um and there's lots of evidence that they are overconfident um the the bigger question or maybe the the harder question is like is it really the case that we can dial down Their overconfidence. Could we actually get humble justices? And I want to suggest that it's more likely that we'll get humble justices who are partisan than it is that we'll ever get nonpartisan justices. That's just never going to happen. It's never been true in history.
0: Yeah. So, you know, just for our listeners' benefit, you actually wrote a piece for Slate as an example (laughs) of something that happened when, well, obviously while Scalia was still on the court. Can you explain the whole argument over? Fish and whether or not fish was meat. What happened? How did this question even come up? <laughs> sure. Yeah.
1: So, this is a, actually an excerpt from the book, from Supreme Hubris. So if you like this story, you thought it was interesting, there's more stories like it uh, in the book. Um, so, uh, there's a tradition on the Supreme Court the law clerks for each chamber invite the justices from the other chambers out to lunch. Uh, the justices, if they say yes, they get to choose the restaurant. The law clerks have to pay. So Justice Scalia is, is, you know, very gregarious, always says yes to these lunches. He always chooses a nice Italian restaurant, fancy white linen tablecloths, right? Um, and so it's me and my three co-corks with Justice Sotomayor, you know, very young, must have been a very odd looking table sitting in this restaurant at lunch with Justice Scalia. Before the lunch, we had uh, talked about what are we going to talk about, right? Like there are very few things we agree with Justice Scalia about on the law or in politics. Um and so I had in my mind decided I was going to try to trip him up. He's famously confident, famously knows the answers on all the legal issues, right? So he has very clear answers on all these cases. So I was going to trip him up on something else, not the law. I was going to try to at least get him to admit uncertainty, doubt, reasonable arguments on both sides. And so uh, halfway through the meal, I said, you know, Justice Scalia, I'm curious, what do you think? Is fish meat? And Celeste, this is actually like a raging debate. If you go on the internet, like you can bring out it the is. worst in people yes. by asking them this question. Um, I don't know the answer. So I was hoping to engage Justice Galeem. And he goes, is fish meat? You're telling me the Pope has been wrong for centuries? Of course it's not meat. right? Why do I, Why do Catholics, you know, millions of Catholics, right? Uh, During we Lent. Eat, we can eat fish on Fridays. It's Lent. Of course it's not meat. It's like, well, you know, is it the biological definition of meat that Flesh of an animal, right? Fish is an animal. He goes, no. He's like scoffs at me and he changes the subject, right? Doesn't even want to engage in the debate. And I'm not trying to suggest that, like, I proved Scalia is wrong about anything on the law, right? This is a trivial example. I get that. But it's an example of overconfidence. It's an example of people thinking they already have all the answers. And when you are overconfident, it unleashes other biases. And in this case, it's not partisanship. People aren't partisan on the meat, on the meatness of fish. It's not like a left right issue. But there's another bias here, which is identity protective cognition. This is the idea that when we answer questions, instead of thinking, what's the right answer? What's the wrong answer? What's the evidence on both sides? We ask ourselves, who might answer this question in a certain way? And are those people, people I usually agree with? For Scalia, right, Catholics. I'm Catholic, Scalia is a practicing Catholic, long time, very famously so. Um, And the Pope right, says, fish is not meat. That's why you can eat it on Fridays. But if you were humble, right, if Scalia had been humble, it's like, oh, that's a. if he was to quote Ted Lasso, if he was curious, not judgmental, he might have said, oh, interesting. Uh, what are the arguments on both sides? Why might it be me? Tell me about that. Right. And I think at the end of the day, all I'm saying is we don't have any judges who are curious. They're all judgmental. They are all telling us the answers. It'd be nice if we had some Ted Lasso's up there on the court.
0: <laughs> we have to take a break, um, but we will come back and talk more about this. There is so much to talk about. We are talking about. What's really the problem with the Supreme Court right now? And according to Aaron Tang, uh, it is overconfidence. Uh, this is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. We're back. You're listening to Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. And with me today is Aaron Tang. His book is called Supreme Hubris. And it's about the, just the absolute ego and overconfidence, hubris, call it what you will, of our current Supreme Court. Aaron's argument is that all of the multitude of problems that we have with the Supreme Court right now, and really there are many, comes down to one thing, and that is overconfidence. Um, I, at this point, still disagree. So let's kind of dig into this layer by layer. Let's talk about the penchant this um, Supreme Court has in just completely ignoring precedent. Um, They don't seem to respect precedent at all. Why do you think that's down to overconfidence? Because that could be down to a lot of different things. I mean, you could see that as... um, uh, revolutionizing. You could see that as somebody who, you know, we, we have a lot of respect uh, and admiration for mavericks, right? We think of John Marshall Harlan as somebody who was the great dissenter and, and upheld the rights of the common citizen, right? Why is why is this down to overconfidence?
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of the things you just talk about are actually what feed the overconfidence problem, the lionizing of Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas on the right, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the left is, you know, being willing to go at all costs to pursue the the causes they care about, right? That sends a message to these 78-year-old people that, hey, you are the answer to all of society's problems on the right or on the left, right? Uh It instills overconfidence rather than stopping it. Um, What is the decision uh, to overrule a prior precedent other than a decision that I, in the current moment, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, I know better than, you know, lightweights like Sandra Day O'Connor and Thurgood Marshall <laughs> and Anthony Kennedy, the 10, the 15 <laughs> Republican appointed justices, Warren Burger, Lewis Powell, who came before me, who looked at the exact same evidence, the exact same Constitution, all of the same arguments, and they came out differently, right? What is overconfidence other than the ability to say, yep, I I know the answer. All these other people, they got it wrong, right? If you had humbler justices... Um, And here, I think uh, David Souter is a really good example. He was a justice in the Supreme Court until uh, the mid-2000s. He was a Republican appointee, George H.W. Bush appointee. Um, And when he voted on the right to abortion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right, he basically said, I don't know what the answer is. Anthony Kennedy, by the way, kind of had the same approach. Kennedy, we know, was very pro-life, Catholic, ardent anti-abortion as a personal matter. But they looked at this body of precedent that the Supreme Court already said. And they were partisan. They had their own personal views, but they humbly deferred to the wisdom of the justices that came before them. Right, The uh, amount of wisdom in an individual man, Edmund Burke uh, once said, is very small, but the wisdom held by the stack of all men, uh, people would have been better, but all people is great. Right, Let's trust the people, the justices who came before us. That's a much humbler approach. Uh, the current Supreme Court doesn't do that. It's overconfident.
0: Okay, so... Let me kind of go through some of the, the reasons other people say the, the Supreme Court is in trouble and have you respond to them. I mean, one really common thing people say is that the Supreme Court, the structure of the Supreme Court is problematic at its core, right? Appointing anybody for light to a lifetime appointment is a, a bad design, that there should be a, a, a limitation and there should be no lifetime appointment. Um, and therefore, we should change the structure of the Supreme Court in and of itself. What about that?
1: So I think that's fair. I think it's totally fair that if you had term limited justices, 18 year terms, uh, where there's a regular set of appointments every two years, whomever's president gets to replace the justice. Right. I think it's fair to say that would resolve some of the pressures. The justices wouldn't be there for life. But the idea that that would magically solve all of our problems, I think, um, is maybe naive, a little too hopeful. For one thing, right? If you, the only way to enact term limits now is to grandfather in all the current justices. They wouldn't be term limited. They could continue to uh, serve and then time their retirement strategically. So all the Republicans will retire, try to retire when there's a Republican president, Republican appointees, rather. Um, it'll take 50 years, 70 years before we'll see any turnover of the court, right? Um, It's also the case that Republicans are still going to appoint, when they're uh, in office, ardent federal society justices. Democrats will appoint uh, reliably liberal justices. You'll still have partisanship. So I think the appointments process is broken, but it's not the root cause.
0: Okay, here's another um, argument for what's at the bottom of the problems. And it was actually made pretty – this argument was made pretty eloquently in the magazine The Nation by Louis Michael Seidman. And he says – the problem is mediocrity <laughs> that uh, until we got justice jackson Ketanji brown jackson you basically had um a, a bunch of justices who gained their seats because of their inside connections and political deals um their, their maybe their scores on paper were higher than average but um their experience was limited they they had not served in an elective office um they'd never served as a defense attorney And so, yeah, they rarely had specialized experience in many of these cases. And so you had you get some fairly mediocre justices. What's your response to that? I'll quibble a
1: little bit, because as I heard you build out the argument, I agreed with some of it more than when I heard the word mediocrity. So I don't think mediocrity, as we normally understand it, is really what's to blame. Like, I might disagree with Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and Neil Gorsuch on a lot of things. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think they're mediocre. They are brilliant <laughs> lawyers, all nine of the justices. right? I clerked for Justice Sotomayor, brilliant human being, smartest person I've ever worked for, and I'm sure the smartest person I ever will work for. Right. There's nothing mediocre about their brains. Um, but you did describe something that I think is a partial cause, which is a lack of white diversity in life experience. It used to be the case that justices in the Supreme Court knew what it meant to run for office. Sandra Day O'Connor was the Senate Majority Leader in the state of Arizona, an elected representative. She knew what it meant to compromise, to find middle ground, to see value in both sides' uh, arguments, uh, see the stakes that both sides care about. Right? We don't have justices who are like that anymore. So I think that's a. It's fair to say that that's a partial cause. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say it's at the bottom of it.
0: Another issue is the secrecy and lack of transparency in the Supreme Court, meaning that in order to get to the highest court in the land, which is such a high lift, you have made so many agreements, you have shaken so many hands behind closed doors, um, and there's no ethical code binding you, (laughs) as there is to so many other uh, judgeships, that. You have what we have right now with ProPublica going after Clarence Thomas like a Rottweiler going after a bone (laughs) and and finding that he's vacationing with billionaires, billionaires and meeting up regularly with people who have cases before the Supreme Court. What about that?
1: So I I think this is a problem, but I don't think it's a cause of the court's legitimate crisis. I think it's a symptom rather of overconfidence, right? One way of thinking about it is like, Suppose Clarence Thomas lived a very, very ethical, you know, pauper's lifestyle, right? Said no to Harlan Crow, no to all the personal jet flights. And then suppose last year the Supreme Court continued, did exactly what it did. It overturned the right to abortion. It gutted common sense safety laws, uh, eviscerated environmental law, struck down the wall between church and state. Would you and I be sitting here being like, okay, you know, Clarence Thomas, though, he's, he's a pretty ethical guy. We trust the Supreme Court. This is okay, right? All of those rights that we care about those laws that we care about that, have, that are now uh, uh, off the books, we're we we we're not worried about it. I don't think so, right? So I think um, more what I would suggest is the, uh, the fact that there are justices on the court, Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas, who don't think the rules should apply to them, right? That the public just has to trust them. They chafe at the idea of oversight. Uh, um, that is a sign that they actually believe they are platonic rulers sitting above the rest of us, free from any kind of accountability, because they just happen to know the right answer. How do they know the right answer? They can make just the perfect lawyer's argument based on what a state did in
0: 1868. So it's so difficult for me to think of overconfidence as as not something that developed over time, right? Like I can't get my mind around thinking of, of them becoming overconfident while they were in the Supreme Court as opposed to coming in with it.
1: Um, I think it's probably true that the longer you have a, a job where you have life tenure and you're told how amazing you are, that you become more and more sure in your ways. Um, but they were, all of the justices were court of appeals judges with, with the exception of Elena Kagan before. Uh, true. So they were, they were getting this message beforehand. Let me try this argument out on, on you, Celeste. All right. Okay. The truth of the matter is almost all of the big constitutional questions that our country is grappling with today are hard. Does the constitution yeah. guarantee a right to abortion? Well, the 14th Amendment guarantees people... Uh, liberty that the government can't take away without due process. Does liberty include a right to abortion? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You can stare at these words. You can stare at history for ages. There's no clear answer. A humble but partisan justice would say, well, I know what I personally want. I know what I feel about this issue, but I don't know that the Constitution answers it. So let me look for ways to come up with an answer that does the least amount of harm to the American people that gives the American people ways to solve their problems, to, to to protect their interests, whether it's on abortion or guns or campaign finance, right? The overconfident justice who's also partisan and says, these aren't hard questions at all. I know all the answers, right? Uh, uh, they they know, they can read the 10, 15 words in the due process clause and tell us that there's no right to abortion, but there is a right to carry a gun around in public even if you're a domestic violent offender, right? Um, that's over that's how overconfidence works it's not that it's by itself the problem it's that it unleashes other biases that people are victim to like partisan motivated reasoning
0: okay and uh, let me th- I'm, I'm trying to think this through as we go because i i mean i guess i've never really thought of overconfidence as being the root cause I've, which i guess is what is tripping me up it's not that i don't detect overconfidence in the rulings and i read them and i think wow you are sure of yourself. And I have never been that sure of myself in my life. And so it's not that I don't detect it. It's it's that I've never conceived of it as being the cause of all these issues. Um, Do you think of overconfidence as being the same as arrogance? To you, is that the same thing? They're similar. Yeah, they're similar.
1: I mean, you know, this is I'm standing on the shoulders of some giants here and talking about overconfidence as a problem. So Danny Kahneman, uh, Nobel Prize-winning yeah. a behavioral economist, psychologist. Yeah, he says thinking
0: he, fast and slow. Yeah,
1: exactly. He studied dozens of different uh, uh, biases, cognitive defects, traps that we fall into. And he said in an interview once that if he could ma- wave a magic wand and get rid of one of them, any one of them, it would be overconfidence bias because it's a force multiplier. It makes all of the other biases worse. Right. When you have humility, people are willing to self-reflect and be like, "Hey, maybe I'm not the." Person who ought to answer all of these huge societal questions. Maybe, um, maybe I don't know the right answer to a two hundred thirty year old constitutional problem where the text is vague and ambiguous.
0: Okay, so you've just I've, I've just detected something that might be a, a crack here for me because um, Adam Grant also talks about the fact that imposter syndrome may actually be a benefit for people because having doubts makes one a, a better leader and a better thinker. So um, this might be, a, a, you might be onto something here. But let's go into some of the more important decisions and, and where you think overconfidence is really getting in the way. Do you think all of the justices on the Supreme Court right now, all of them, Kagan, Jackson, all of them are being uh, impeded by overconfidence?
1: All nine of the justices have written opinions that fall victim to overconfidence bias. They all have signed or written opinions that say, oh, this case is easy, even though dozens of lower federal court judges have disagreed, couldn't figure out the right answer, divided in the lower courts, right? The the justices are very prone to saying, This is an easy case. I have the answer. It's just, you know, you have to look at this statute in just the right way with this, just the right lawyers' argument. So all nine of the justices, now that's not to say they are overconfident to the same extent. I think some justices are more much more overconfident than others. You have the chief justice willing in a huge case like the abortion case, willing to say, I actually don't know what the Constitution says about this. And so I'm going to look for some other ways to minimize the harm of the decision. Um, But at at different points. And then you have
0: Alito, which is an entire different category uh, on their own. And Clarence Thomas, who tends to quote his own dissents as yeah but we're gonna have to take a break and then we're gonna come back because there's a really important question here i haven't asked yet um i am talking to Aaron tang about what exactly is wrong with the supreme court uh you're listening to hear me out a podcast from slate i'm celeste headley we will be back in a moment and we're back this is hear me out i'm celeste headley and we're talking about what the heck is wrong with the supreme court Aaron Tang says it is overconfidence. So here's the thing, Aaron. If it's overconfidence that is the problem, if the problem with the Supreme Court is that they're not doubting themselves, they're not questioning themselves, they're not consulting experts and thinking, oh, maybe I'm wrong, that's almost impossible to fix. Well, I'm not
1: so sure. So let me try this out. If you think the problem is just partisanship, rank partisanship, that's, in my view, impossible to fix, because you're never going to get nonpartisan justices. You could try to uh, uh, win the partisanship game. Democrats could try to pack the Supreme Court with six liberal justices. But then the Republicans will come back and they'll add 10 conservative justices the next time they have the trifecta. Right? For me, the only thing scarier than Sam Alito telling my daughter what to do with her body is 11 Sam Alitos telling her what to do with her body. So I don't think that's a solution. <laughs> But if overconfidence is the problem, then history actually has a very helpful uh, example, a situation where actually we solved this overconfidence problem. We, the American people, solved it by putting pressure on the overconfident Supreme Court, uh, in a way threatening it, uh, uh, and two of the justices actually dialed down their overconfidence. They continue to be partisan, but they became much more humble And this is what actually we talked about the New Deal Supreme Court a bit earlier. This is what led to the New Deal Supreme Court changing course and upholding, allowing Congress and states to enact minimum wage laws, child labor laws and so
0: forth. Okay, but here's where you come into an area where I actually am an expert, and that is changing people's minds, which is supremely difficult. This is where you like smack you up there, right way. against... Yeah, this is where you smack right up against the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? That's the effect where the lower your competence in a particular area, the higher your confidence in your abilities. Yeah. So um, Alito's lack of competence in the area of reproductive rights means his confidence in that area is sky high. Yeah. So me saying, look, you need to step back and learn from the experts here, That's going to have very little play. It'll have very little
1: effect. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. It'll have very little effect on Sam Alito. It'll have very little effect on Clarence Thomas. Yeah. But what history suggests is that uh, the way that putting pressure on the Supreme Court, threatening it, has an effect is a self-interested way. It's a self-interested motivation that it gets created for the justices, right? So I'm talking in particular about the chief, who I think is already there, I'm talking about Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, one of these two, maybe Neil Gorsuch, right? Here's the choice that the American people need to present to them. The American people come out and say, you know what? We're not going to stand for nine black black-robed, unelected lawyers ruling over us. We're going to vote. We're going to vote in numbers. At this point, it means voting for Democrats. We're going to deliver Democrats majorities in the House and the Senate, right? And we are going to talk seriously about real court reform whether it's packing justice, uh, adding justice to the court, whether it's stripping the Supreme Court of the power to decide any interesting case, the Supreme Court will no longer have jurisdiction or power to decide voting rights cases, reproductive autonomy cases, gun safety cases, right? Congress has clearly has the Article Three power in the Constitution to do that. Yeah, they do. Um, so if we do that, now put yourself in very self-interested way in Amy Coney Barrett's views. Would you like to be in the minority for the next 30 years of your life of a packed delegitimize Supreme Court that people think is a laughing stock, or if not packed courts, would you like to be uh, on the majority of a court that has no power because Congress has taken away the court's power to decide all these interesting cases? Or would you rather do what Owen Roberts and Charles Evans Hughes did in 1937 when they said, you know what? It's much more fun to be moderate sort of centrist power brokers on a legitimate court, Right and and say basically we're going to change our approach. We'll be much more humble. You don't need to pack the court. You don't need to strip the court of jurisdiction. We get the message that the American people are sending us loud and clear. We're gonna we're gonna be uh, uh, more centrist justices as a result. Right? There's a self interested reason to think that a second conservative justice might join the chief in taking this approach.
0: Okay, so your solution would be assuming that one or two of the conservatives, um. Has rationality left?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think yes. I think that's fair, right? If if we just assume the other side is always irrational, I don't think we're going to get very far. Um, We've got even bigger problems than overconfidence bias. Uh, um, uh, But yes, I I genuinely believe that uh, several of the conservative justices are rational. They care about the public image of the Supreme Court. They care about the United States, um, and they might care about those things more than they care about the outcomes that they want in these big issues.
0: Okay, and have you have you ever used this kind of tactic in any area of your life before, Aaron?
1: Sure, I have children, right? <laughs> so you, all the time we make threats to our children uh, that we don't really want to- The truth really wanna... comes
0: out, parents are manipulators. Yeah, we don't really want to follow
1: through. I really don't want to take the screens away from my children, right? Actually, Children's on screens is a pretty good deal for parents. Parents keep other things done uh, around the house, Right. Um, but I also want my kids to get ready for school on time and brush their teeth and go to bed. Right. So, yeah. um, listen, I, you know, I'm not a fan of threatening things. It doesn't feel good to threaten people. But, um, but I, I'm also a fan of democracy. So if, if threatening the Supreme Court is what it takes to ensure that voting rights can be protected, reproductive justice, gun safety laws. Right. That's that's something that I'm willing to do.
0: Okay, so there are very few things that are going to get people's hackles up quite as quickly as talk of the Supreme Court. We know you have thoughts about this, and we want to hear them. So email us. It's hearmeout@slate.com. Last week, we had Laura Guzman on the show to argue that harm reduction is the answer to the overdose crisis in this country. And that take got some of you thinking. So before we go, we want to share a note we got from a listener named Amy about this. Amy wrote, I have a lot of conflicting feelings about harm reduction. Every time I hear an advocate speaking about it, my guard goes up. While I agree in principle with harm reduction, the way its advocates speak about it often rubs me the wrong way because it feels like they haven't personally reckoned with the deep harms and trauma of addiction. In my opinion, we should focus resources and advocacy on better evidence-based treatments for addiction and access to these treatments. Harm reduction measures should be thought of as a last resort, not the primary way to address the problem of addiction. Thank you, Amy. That's actually one of the biggest pushbacks on harm reduction. Although I feel like many advocates for that say it is it's not seen as the only solution, but again, I'm not an expert in the treatment of addiction, and I am certainly not an expert in harm reduction. All of your opinions and your thoughts are welcome, and we want to hear all of them. I know that we say this every single episode, but we really do mean it. We love hearing from you, and every single opinion and thought that you have is welcome here. So email us. It's at slate.com. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. So until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open.